Chapter 10 of The Star Chamber, an historical romance, volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Star Chamber, volume 2, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Chapter 10, The Old Palace Yard of Westminster. The throng outside the gates of Whitehall felt their breasts dilate and their pulses dance as they listened to the flourishes of the trumpets and cornets, the thundering brute of the kettle drums, and other martial music that proclaimed the setting forth of the steel-clad champions who were presently to figure in the lists. It was, in sooth, a goodly sight to see the long and brilliant procession formed by the fourteen knights, each so gallantly mounted, so splendidly accoutred, and accompanied by such a host of gentlemen ushers, pages, yeomen, and grooms, some on horseback and some on foot, and the eye of the looker-on was never wearied of noticing the diversity of their habiliments, some of the knights having cuirasses and helmets polished as silver and reflecting the sun's rays as from a mirror, some russet-colored armor, some blue harness, some fluted, some corslets damaskined with gold and richly ornamented, others black and lacquered breastplates, as was the case with the harness of Prince Charles, and one, a dead black coat of mail, in the instance of Sir Giles Mompesson. The arms of each were slightly varied, either in make or ornament. A few wore sashes across their breastplates, and several had knots of ribbons tied above the coronals of their lances, which were borne by their esquires. In order to give the vast crowd assembled in the neighborhood of Whitehall an opportunity of witnessing as much as possible of the chivalrous spectacle, it was arranged by Prince Charles that the line of the procession should first take its course through the hole being great, and then, keeping near the wall of the privy garden, should pass beneath the king's gate and draw up for a short time in the old palace yard near Westminster Hall, where a great concourse was assembled, amidst which a space was kept clear by parties of halberdiers and yeomen of the guard. The procession was headed by the prince, and the stately step of his milk-white charger well beseemed his own majestic deportment. When the long train of gentlemen ushers and pages accompanying him had moved on, so as to leave the course clear for the next comer and his followers, a young knight presented himself, who, more than any other in the procession, attracted the attention of the spectators. This youthful knight's visor was raised so as to disclose his features, and these were so comely that, combined with his finely proportioned figure, perfectly displayed by his armor, he offered an ensemble of manly attractions almost irresistible to female eyes nor did the grace and skill which he exhibited in the management of his steed commend him less highly to sterner judges, who did not fail to discover that his limbs, though light, were in the highest degree vigorous and athletic, and they prognosticated most favorably of his chances of success in the jousts. When it became known that this Prue Chevalier was Sir Jocelyn Monchancy, the chosen antagonist of Buckingham, still greater attention was bestowed upon him, and as his good looks and gallant bearing operated strongly, as we have stated, in his favor, many a good wish and lusty cheer were uttered for him. The effect of all this excitement among the crowd on behalf of Monchancy was to render Buckingham's reception by the same persons comparatively cold, and the cheers given for the magnificent favorite and his princely retinue were so few and so wanting in spirit that he who was wholly unaccustomed to such neglect and who had been jealously listening to the cheers attending Monchancy's progress, was highly offended, and could scarcely conceal his displeasure. But if he was indignant at his own reception, he was exasperated at the treatment experienced by his ally. Close behind him rode a knight in black armor, with a sable panache on his helm. 
stalwart limbs and a manly bearing had this knight, and he bestrode his powerful charger like one well accustomed to the saddle. But though no one could gainsay his skill as a horseman, or his possible prowess as a man-at-arms, most thought he had no title to be there, and gave unmistakable evidence of their conviction by groans and hootings. This black knight was Sir Giles Mompesson, and very grim and menacing was his aspect. Ample accommodation for the knightly company and their attendants, as well as for the multitudes congregated to behold them, was afforded by the broad area in front of Westminster Hall. Nevertheless, as those in the rear could not see as well as those in the front, every chance elevation offering a better view was eagerly seized upon. All the accessible points of Westminster Hall, its carved porch and windows, were invaded. So were the gates of the old palace hard by. So were the buttresses of the abbey. And men were perched, like grotesque ornaments, on crocketed pinnacles and stone waterspouts. The tall and curiously painted clock tower, resembling an Italian campanile, which then faced the portals of Westminster Hall, was covered with spectators. But the position most coveted and esteemed the best was the fountain at that time standing in the midst of the old palace yard. This structure, which was of great antiquity and beauty, with a pointed summit supported by tall slender shafts, and a large basin beneath formed a sort of pivot round which the procession turned as it arrived upon the ground, and consequently formed the best point of view of all, and those were esteemed highly fortunate who managed to obtain a place upon it. Amongst these lucky individuals were three of the reader's acquaintances, and we think he will scarce fail to recognize the saucy-faced apprentice with the cudgel under his arm, and the fair-haired, blue-eyed, country-looking maiden at his side, as well as the hale old rustic by whom they were attended. All three were delighted with their position, and Dick Taverner took full credit to himself for his cleverness in procuring it for them. As to pretty Gillian, nothing could please her better, for she could not only see all that was going forward, but everybody could see her, even Prince Charles himself, and she flattered herself that she attracted no little attention. And now that the whole of the procession had come up, the picture was certainly magnificent, and well worth contemplation. Everything was favorable to the enjoyment of the spectacle. The day was bright and beautiful, and a sparkling sunshine lighted up the splendid accoutrements of the knights, the gorgeous caparisons of their steeds, and the rich habiliments of their attendants, while a gentle breeze stirred the plumes upon the helmets and fluttered the bandrels on their lances. The effect was heightened by enlivening strains of minstrelsy and the fanfares of the trumpeters. The utmost enthusiasm was awakened among the spectators, and their acclamations were loud and long. At this juncture, Dick Taverner, who had been shouting as lustily as the rest, tossing his cap in the air and catching it dexterously as it fell, held his breath and clapped his bonnet on his head, for an object met his eye which fixed his attention. It was the somber figure of a knight accoutred in black armor, who was pressing his steed through the throng in the direction of the fountain. His beaver was up, and the sinister countenance was not unknown to the apprentice. "'Saints defend us!' he ejaculated. "'Is it possible that can be Sir Giles Mompesson? "'What doth he hear amidst this noble company? "'The villainous extortioner cannot surely be permitted to enter the lists.' "'Hold your peace, friend, if you are wise,' muttered a deep voice behind him. "'No, I will not be silent,' rejoined the apprentice, "'without looking round at his cautioner, "'but keeping his eye fixed upon Sir Giles.' I will tell the felon knight my mind. I am not afraid of him. Hark ye, my masters, he called in a loud voice to those around him. Do you know who that black raven before you is? 
If not, I will tell you. He would peck out your eyes if he could, and devour you and your substance, as he has done that of many others. That bird of ill omen is Sir Giles Mompesson. Impossible, cried a bystander indignantly. Yet, now I look again, tis certainly he. As certain as that we are standing here, said the apprentice. And if you want further proof, behold, he is closing his visor. He thinks to hide himself from our notice, but the trick shall not avail him. A groan for the knavish extortioner, my masters. A deep groan for Sir Giles Mompesson. Thus enjoined, a great hooting was made by the bystanders, and Sir Giles's name was coupled with epithets that could not be very agreeable to his ear. "'You were best let him alone, fool,' cried the deep voice behind Dick. "'You will only bring yourself into trouble.' But the apprentice was not to be thus advised, and could not even be restrained by the entreaties of Gillian, who was sadly apprehensive that some mischief would befall him. So conspicuous did he make himself in the disturbance, that at last Sir Giles rode towards him, and singling him out, seized him with his gauntleted hand, and dragged him from the edge of the fountain. Dick struggled manfully to get free, but he was in a grasp of iron, and all his efforts at releasing himself were ineffectual. He called on those near him to rescue him, but they shrank from the attempt. Poor Gillian was dreadfully alarmed. She thought her lover was about to be sacrificed to Sir Giles's resentment on the spot, and, falling on her knees, she piteously besought him to spare his life. "'For shame, Gillian,' cried Dick. "'Do not demean yourself thus. The caitiff knight dares not harm me for his life, for if he should maltreat me, I shall be well avenged by my patron, Sir Jocelyn Monchency. I would my voice might reach him. I should not long be kept here. To the rescue, Sir Jocelyn, to the rescue!' And he shouted forth the young knight's name at the top of his voice. "'Who calls me?' demanded Monchency, pressing through the throng in the direction of the outcries. "'I, your humble follower, Dick Tavener,' roared the apprentice. "'I am in the clutches of the devil, and I pray you release me.' "'Ha! What is this?' cried Sir Jocelyn. "'Set him free at once, Sir Giles. I command you.' "'What if I refuse?' rejoined the other. "'Then I will instantly enforce compliance,' thundered Monchency. "'If I release him, it is because I must defend myself and punish your insolence,' cried Sir Giles.' and as he spoke he thrust back the apprentice with such force that he would have fallen to the ground if he had not dropped into the arms of his kneeling mistress now sir jocelyn continued sir giles fiercely you shall answer for this interference hold interposed the authoritative voice of prince charles we must have no unseemly brawls here to your places at once in the procession sir knights we are about to set forward to the tilt-yard with this he gave the word to move on, and all further sound of disturbance was drowned by the trampling of steeds and the brood of the kettle-drums, cornets, and trumpets. Nowise disheartened by what had occurred, Dick Tavener would have followed with the stream, and carried his mistress and her grandsire along with him, but the former had been so much terrified by what had occurred, that dreading lest her lover's imprudence should get him into further scrapes, she positively refused to proceed any further. "'I have seen quite enough,' she cried. "'And if you have any love for me, Dick, "'you will take me away and not expose yourself to further risk. "'If you are indeed bent on going on, "'I shall return with my grandsire.' "'He will do well to follow your advice, young mistress,' "'said the deep voice which had previously sounded in Dick's ears. "'If he had taken mine, "'he would not have voluntarily thrust himself "'into the fangs of the tiger, "'from which it is well for him that he has escaped "'with a whole skin.' As this was said, Dick and his mistress turned towards the speaker, 
and beheld a tall man masked and muffled in a black cloak. "'Heaven shield us! Tis the enemy!' exclaimed Gillian, trembling. "'Not so, fair damsel,' replied the disguised personage. "'I am not the arch-enemy of man, neither am I enemy of yours, nor of Dick Taverner. Your froward lover neglected my previous caution, but I will give him another in the hope that you may induce him to profit by it. Let him keep out of the reach of Sir Giles Mompesson's emissaries, or his wedding day will be longer in coming than you both hope for. Nay, it may not come at all.' With these words, the man in the mask mingled with the crowd, and almost instantly disappeared, leaving the young couple, especially Gillian, in much consternation. So earnest was the maiden for instant departure, that Dick was obliged to comply, and as the whole of the thoroughfares about Whitehall were impassable, they proceeded to the riverside, and took boat for London Bridge, at a hostel near which old Greenford had put up his horse. End of chapter 10